My global IQ is 109. Hello, thank you so much for joining us for what I know will be just a fascinating afternoon of conversation. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Larry Wright is a good friend of the World Affairs Council, and you know him as a best-selling author. He's a screenwriter, playwright, as well as a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine. The end of October is not the first time he has successfully looked into that crystal ball. It was back in 1998 he wrote the screenplay The Siege, which predicted a series of terrorist attacks in New York City. In 2007, he won a Pulitzer Prize for what I think is really one of the best books to understand the current situation in the Middle East, and that is The Looming Tower. It really is the definitive account of the rise of Al-Qaeda. Larry lives in Austin, Texas, and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Larry, thanks so much for spending an hour with us today. It's good to be back with you, Jim. So I know you've been asked this question a thousand times, but I have to ask, when did you first decide to write this book the end of October? And really, what was the catalyst that drove you to devote, what, two or three years of time researching it? Actually, Jim, it started a decade ago as a screenplay for Ridley Scott. Uh, he had asked me, uh, you know, he had read that Cormac McCarthy book, The Road, and, uh, which is a post-apocalyptic novel about a father and a son wandering through the ruins of civilization. And Ridley's question was, well, what happened? It's not explained in the novel. And I thought that was a very interesting question. And uh, so I was drawn to the idea of writing about a pandemic because I, as a young reporter, I had written several articles about disease outbreaks. And I was living in Atlanta where the Center for Disease Control is. And I was so enchanted by the world of public health and the epidemiologists. They just seem like swashbuckling intellectuals. You know, they're really courageous people who would fly off and confront some novel disease. Uh, I'll tell you, I would rather be in a war zone. Uh, but these people, you know, they go off in the face of danger and they, they solve these puzzles, which are the diseases that confront us. And I decided that a pandemic would be the most interesting way of crippling civilization. Uh, but Ridley didn't make the movie, and I'm glad he didn't. Uh, I hadn't solved the story problems, uh, and I hadn't done the research that I needed to do. So I put it aside, and a, a few years ago in 2017, I pulled it out again and got back to work. Well, I suspect there may be a movie still out of this book. Well, Ridley's reattached himself as director. We'll see. Uh, Hollywood, uh, you know, <laughs> You know, Larry, one of the things that people may not know who haven't followed you and read some of your books is your long interest in the Middle East, and particularly the years that you spent in Saudi Arabia. And what I found so interesting about this book, knowing you, is that you really have tied together so many of your interests, religion, uh, politics, the Middle East. Um, tell us a little bit about, about your year in Saudi Arabia and what you were doing and why you have really a sort of a special uh, knowledge of uh, the Hajj, the pilgrimage? Well, that's an interesting question, Jim. I, after 9-11, you know, when I was starting work on the Looming Tower, I knew I had to go to Saudi Arabia in order to write about bin Laden, but the Saudis wouldn't let me in. You know, I was a journalist, and the last thing they wanted was a journalist. And so I 
I found a job. I got the job was mentoring young reporters at a newspaper in Jeddah, which was bin Laden's hometown. So I became an expat worker. And that's something they allow uh, in a big way. And, uh, but it was so much better than actually uh, being a reporter in a hotel room. You know, I, I had a job, I had, a, had to go to work every day, I had all these young reporters uh, that I was supervising. And I learned so much more about that country than I would ever have had I been just a reporter. But one of my very first tasks was uh, overseeing our coverage of the Hajj. Uh, and I couldn't go to Mecca myself, but I was in touch with my young reporters. And, um, you know, it occurred to me then that from a public health standpoint, these mass gatherings uh, like the pilgrimage to the Hajj or so many other pilgrimages and mass concerts and so on, represent a tremendous threat to public health. Every year there were outbreaks of disease uh, in Mecca, some of them quite serious. And I thought, what would happen if, you know, something like the 1918 flu appeared uh, in Mecca and then suddenly everybody got on airplanes and flew to all parts of the globe simultaneously. You'd have a worldwide pandemic at once. So that thought never left me. Indeed, you know, one of the reasons I guess that we've having such a challenge with COVID-19 is it happened during the Chinese New, or at least part of it was during the Chinese New Year. In Austin, you really dodged a bullet, didn't you? Oh man, we would have been in the same spot as New Orleans if, if we hadn't canceled South by Southwest. And it was a terrible loss for the city, a financial disaster for so many restaurants and, and bars and, you know, just, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars just off the top. But many, many of these uh, institutions depended on uh, South by to get them through the rest of the year. And I, you know, setting aside COVID-19, I, you know, the scar from that is still going to mark Austin for a long time. You know, Austin gets around 300,000 visitors a year just for that one, what, uh, one week, 10 day event. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's an immense draw and uh, it's done a lot for the city in terms of gaining attention and help. I mean, my niece is a singer in LA and she, this was going to be her big breakthrough. And, uh, you know, there were countless young artists like that, that didn't get their chance. In fact, my niece had a feature film that was supposed to be premiered as well. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go back to 1918. I think that was the year uh, with Philadelphia. Is that right? Where you had the armistice parade and sort of set the context of, of this and really what it did to the city of Philadelphia. You know, it's a, it's a sad story, Jim, because uh, but it does remind me to some extent of some of the actions being taken right now. Uh, health officials were warning that people had to not congregate in, in, in big crowds. And uh, where they sheltered in place, uh, you know, they were able to pretty much keep the infection under control, like St. Louis was a good example, uh, where they, they were managed to contage, contain the contagion uh, at a reasonable amount. But Philadelphia, simply ignored that and there was a bond parade uh, and you see from the pictures the mass of people that were gathered there and uh, it was in just as the, as the 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 contagion was about to explode that's when they had this parade and um, Philadelphia was one of the hardest hit cities in America 
Was there a debate about whether or not to have the parade at the time? Well, there was discussion about it, but the city health officer and the mayor had made the decision that they, they didn't want uh, to pass up the opportunity to sell those bonds and get people out. You know, same forces that you feel at work now, people wanted to be outside, people wanted to gather, they wanted to congregate, they wanted to show off their patriotism. And, uh, you know, October 1918 was the deadliest month in American history. And uh, a lot of that came from uh, Philadelphia. So it probably won't surprise viewers or people who know me, I did not take organic chemistry or majored in biology. Yeah. And you have done such a wonderful job of explaining sort of the alphabet soup of viruses. And I wonder if you might just take a minute or two and, and help us understand how the, the building blocks of, of the virus. Well, I learned a lot about viruses and there's a lot to know. There are trillions of them. Uh, you know, that we have no idea how many there are, but there are many times more viruses than there are stars in the universe. Uh, Curtis Suttle, who is a, a marine biologist in Vancouver, uh, you know, we used to think the ocean was sterile. No, it's not. Uh, you dump a bucket into a, into a gallon of seawater, you'll find hundreds of thousands of viruses in that bucket. Uh, Subtle and his students uh, put buckets up on top of the Pyrenees and to see if viruses traveled. Uh, and they, they found that, you know, they collected tens of thousands of viruses that seemed to travel on the jet stream. Uh, they're everywhere. We don't know exactly what their, their mission is. They're all little lumps of protein. They have some mission, but ancient viruses that have infected us are a part of our DNA. Viral uh, genomes are, viruses are in our genomes. They, they affect our memory. Uh, they're part of our cognition. Uh, you know, so we wouldn't be who we are without viruses. Now, there are DNA viruses and RNA viruses. And flu, for instance, is an RNA virus, and so is coronavirus. And uh, one of the characteristics of an RNA virus is that it mutates. It's, uh, it's unstable. Uh, so far, coronavirus has been more stable than one would expect, but it always has the cap capacity to change. And, uh, and by that, you mean it can have just so many, I mean, I guess, protein clinical manifestations, right? I mean, everyone is different and can... Yeah, we have small changes that have been registering in, in this strain. That's how we can tell where the viruses come from. But larger changes could affect how the viruses behave in our bodies or how contagious they might be. Uh, you know, in 1918, that flu uh, mutated over the summer, which is one reason it was more fatal in the fall. Uh, you know, influenzas every year change. And when we try to make a vaccine for the next season's virus, uh, you know, they're, they're just guessing about how, you know, where the flu will go and how will it change. They, it's a very difficult science. And that's because these RNA uh, viruses are a moving target. Larry, you see the photo that's up there. I wonder if you might, you know, just sort of highlight some of the major uh, viruses that have affected us. and. Particularly, I'd be interested in your uh, talking about uh, Jerry Ford when we get there and um, his whole experience, what happened when he was president. Sure. Uh, well, I, 
like HIV, that's an interesting one because, uh, you know, like COVID is a very complicated virus and we still have not been able to develop a vaccine for it. So, you know, all this talk about, you know, when we get a vaccine, we have to keep in mind that some of these viruses are too elusive and we haven't figured them out. There are several plagues along here. And um, the one that I would, let's see, the third plague, uh, you're, the screen is covering up, I suppose, the Black Death. But uh, the plague came in, uh, in different groups, you know, they like in the 14th century, uh, it, when it arrived in Sicily, it came from uh, the the Mongol horde had uh, laid siege to this city called Kaffa in the Crimean Peninsula, and uh, they were suddenly overwhelmed by the soldiers were by uh, this plague, and before they left, they they catapulted the bodies into the walled city. And the panicked uh, merchants who lived there got their boats and, and fled to Italy. And that's where the plague entered in 1356. And it killed as much as half the population of Europe, you can imagine. And that wasn't the end of it. It recurred, as you can see on this, uh, again and again for about 300 years. Um, swine flu, uh, the 1976 flu uh, was a, a swine flu. You know, swine flu, it, H1N1 is how it's described medically. That was the 1918 flu. It killed between 50 and 100 million people. And in 1976, when I was a young reporter in Atlanta, uh, there, was a, there was an outbreak. Uh, a young uh, recruit named David Lewis uh, had gone on a forced march at forced Fort Dix, New Jersey, which figured strongly in 1918. And he went back to his barracks and died. Uh, he was a healthy young man. And uh, the autopsy showed that uh, he had been affected with H1N1. Well, now this raised the question, what should we do? You know, if you had as many as 100 million people dying in 1918, in, in more modern terms, it would be, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world. So, and of course, public health officials have been dreading this uh, ever since 1918. And uh, so they developed a vaccine, they rushed it, uh, as you can imagine. But the question was, uh, you know, do we give it to everybody? I, as, as, a, as a reporter, I happened to find out that, uh, that David Lewis had run into a pig uh, over the Christmas holidays. This is, you know, this is the reporter job. You know, I was, I was finding, I'd found out, you know, nobody had said this, uh, but uh, his mother told me uh, that uh, uh, over the holidays, David and his girlfriend had been coming home, were in Oneonta, New York, upstate New York. They were coming home from a party and the snow had closed the roads down to just one lane. And as they were driving home at night, they came up on a pig in the middle of the road. And uh, David got out and grabbed him by the ears and pulled him off the road. And uh, the question was, did the pig cough in his face? So if, if, it's, if it's animal to human transmission, nothing to worry about. But if it's human to human, then we're in trouble. 
And so I had to track down the pig and I, I found him. It was a house pig. <laughs> There's a strange story, but I, I, I finally convinced the very reluctant uh, owner of the pig to let his vet take some blood and send it to the CDC. And it turned out the pig had never been sick a day in his life. Hundred, millions of Americans got vaccinated. Uh, some of them uh, got Guillain-Barre syndrome as a result of it. And the vaccine program was stopped. Uh, it was a terrible political blow to Gerald Ford and uh, the mystery remains, uh, you know, 50 to 100 million people died in 1918 and only one in 1976. Later, that, that particular strain of flu came back in 2009 as a pandemic, but it wasn't as serious as the ordinary seasonal flu. So that's the weirdness of, you know, these kinds of, facts of uh, viruses. They are, they are tricky to, to work with and they change constantly. So remind me again, how long did it take to develop that vaccine? There was already a flu vaccine. It had to be mod you know, um, moderated to, to accommodate uh, this new H1N1. So it wasn't, it wasn't like having to create an entirely new platform uh, as we are having to do with coronavirus. So let me work in a question from Al. Uh, he says, how did you build up Henry's character? And uh, I, I, let's, we have a terrific picture of uh, Dr. Parsons when you tell him about, about, about him. Well, I, Henry Parsons is his name, and I, I gave him that name because uh, in the 19th century, this, this man that you see before you was a, a country doctor and a botanist. And, uh, but he got appointed as an assistant medical officer during the uh, influenza outbreak in London in the 1890s. And at the time, it was thought that influenza, the word is Italian meaning influences, it, it, they thought that it came from environmental gases, miasmas, it, they were called. And uh, Henry Parsons was the first to conclusively prove that influenza is spread by contagion. Uh, it was a major medical breakthrough by a person who's little remembered now, but I decided to borrow his name. He's a, Henry exemplifies those qualities that I've spoken of, of courage and ingenuity that I find so prevalent in the world of public health. I, I just can't tell you how much I admire them. And as a writer, it's not easy to create a hero in modern day. But it is easy when you look at the people that are doing on the front lines now uh, fighting this disease, uh, you see heroism wherever you turn. There is a Dallas connection uh, with Henry. Uh, Henry has been touched by disease himself. He suffered from rickets as a child. And some of your audience may remember Lonnie Cleaver, who was a professor uh, at SMU, who uh, was a friend of mine, and, uh, and he had that disease as a child and it, it, it marked him. And I always admired Lonnie's courage uh, and uh, for, for living through that disease and, and, uh, and like getting on with his life. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu.
So when I was reading the book, after a few of the names, and I recognized Richard Clark and one or two other, then I thought, oh, I better start looking up in, <laughs> in Wikipedia. Some of these people might be real. <laughs> Some of these people might be real. And a person who really fascinated me um, and, and then recognized you know, that he actually won a Nobel Prize and so forth is the Italian Carlo Urbani. Did, did you ever uh, know of him, meet him or? No, no, I would love to have met him. He was a great man. Uh, Carlo Urbani was, a, uh, he was an Italian doctor. Uh, uh, he, he worked with Doctors Without Borders. In fact, he was one of the ones who accepted the Nobel Prize for that organization. And after that, he went to Vietnam to work with uh, children who were suffering from parasitical worms. And uh, in 2003, a, uh, a patient came into the hospital in Saigon where he was working and uh, very ill. He had just gotten off a plane from Hong Kong. And uh, soon doctors and nurses in the hospital began to sicken and die. And the hospital was panicked. The whole city was panicked. And uh, administrators asked uh, Carlo to take over the administration of the hospital, which he did, although his family was very reluctant for him to do that. He told the city authorities how to you know, create sheltering in place and, uh, and the kinds of restrictions they would need. And he personally would ferry the tissue and blood samples across town on his moped to the only lab that was still open. And he described the disease. He was the first to do that and recognize it as a novel disease. It's one of the miracles of public health that that disease, which is SARS, uh, was contained within 150 days. It's far more fatal than COVID-19. It killed about 10% of all the people that infected. And one of them, unfortunately, was Carlo Urbani. So one of our viewers, um said, and I, I think it's about obviously the SARS epidemic. He says on page 54, you state that China tried to mislead the World Health Organization on the SARS epidemic. Any thoughts about WHO's role right now and why um, was WHO so believing of China at this time? And let me just remind people that they may send in questions. And I do have a question um, with uh, audio that I'll bring in in just a moment. Well, you have to understand about WHO, it has no power. It's a supplicant. Uh, it has to be granted permission by, by member countries uh, of the UN to even come into, this, into the country. And uh, what, what seems sort of um, abject pleading on the part of the head of the WHO to China is essentially asking permission. For three weeks, the Chinese would not let the World Health Authorities into the country, even after they had announced the presence of this disease. And that's inexcusable. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, China's not alone. There are a lot of countries, you know, I set my novel, it started in Indonesia, uh, which has also hid the ball in the past. Uh, there are countries that don't want to be stigmatized with the presence of a disease. Uh, in Indonesia, they actually uh, established a precedent of claiming ownership of the disease that, you know, as if it were a national resource and they should be able to get something out of the investigations and the vaccines and all that that, that come out of uh, Indonesia. Uh, we have another question and you, before we started, you were kind enough to show me your whiteboard behind you. Yeah. 
Um, question is, how did you decide upon the ending of your novel? And I'll add to that, um, do you plan and outline your books ahead of time? Uh, I can't talk entirely about the ending of the novel because I want readers to be surprised. But let, just, let me just say that it came out of research. Uh, when, I, when I tried to write the screenplay earlier, I hadn't done the research that I needed to do to understand the natural progress of a disease like this and where it might originate. And, uh, and there are so many different sources uh, for viral diseases. But uh, I think that the kinds of things that we're doing to the planet and so on affect that. And I think that those concerns are reflected in the novel. As for the other question, Jim, remind me what it was exactly. I, how do I plan the... Yeah, well, do, you, do you do an outline ahead of time? I mean, you know where you're going when you sit down and get in that first 50 to 100 pages. Uh, Eventually, I do. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, just have to discover it. Uh, but uh, typically, what I do is just keep incredible notes. You know, I use note cards and I make a list. If it's a fictional project like this, uh, or even a nonfiction book, I'll make a list of scenes and, uh, you know, try to, and then. Uh, try to organize them in some sort of coherent fashion and make a rough outline out of that. And then I do a lot of drafts. I'm just a person that uh, writes and then rewrites. I feel like what we call writing really is when you rewrite. Yeah, I know David McCullough still is writing with his fountain pen. Do you, do you write at the computer? I, no, I do write at the computer. I don't use a fountain pen. Uh, David, I admire terrifically. Uh, and he's, a, you know, he, like him, I have artifacts facts of my, you know, writing career. And I, I still have a typewriter, but I don't use it. But I know young reporters have different techniques, you know, internet techniques, things that I don't, uh, I haven't mastered. So I, I'm really beginning to feel myself being phased out in the same manner. So we have another question I'd like to bring in. Based on your knowledge about pandemics that you've acquired, what is your take on the way COVID-19 is being handled? And I guess that's a very broad question. We may, you might want to break it into different parts. Well, the, I think the question is best put, how is it being handled by various countries? Because it's being handled in many different ways. Yeah. And I think what we can observe, Jim, is that, uh, first of all, you made that point about the World Health uh, Organization. It has no authority. There's no global direction uh, for organizing this. There's certainly no rules uh, that, uh, that nations have to uh, follow. Uh, so every country is in it on their own. And you see many different approaches from, you know, Singapore or China, let's say, you know, China locking everybody down, quarantining hundreds of millions of people. It's an unbelievable uh, task to do that. And then Sweden just deciding to let this wave roll through their population. Um, and here in the United States, every state or many states are handling it differently. The, the point is every governmental entity is improvising. And, you know, that, uh, you know, that some may succeed better than others. No doubt they will because they're all different. But uh, without, you know, a coherent strategy, uh, the, the town next to yours that is not paying attention to uh, safe hygiene 
uh, rules will undermine the town that is trying its best uh, to follow the rules. You know, this is, you know, the rule of, of contagious disease is that well, one, one city that has uh, a contagious disease gives it to every city. It's, it's just, when the Chinese made that declaration on New Year's Eve that there was a new coronavirus, it, it was apparent from the beginning that it was going to reach us eventually. You, you'll like this, Larry. One of our viewers wrote, thanks, don't tell us uh, the spoilers. I just ordered your book. <laughs> so, I recognize this person, Dion. I happen to know that she has a parrot at home. And she says, your book addresses the role of birds in transmitting diseases. Yeah. Please comment on this. And recognize that you know she may hang her parrot out the, off the balcony if you don't answer it right. All right. Well, uh, it's most most uh, influenzas originate from birds, uh, and typically it's not a bird that gives you the flu. Uh, usually, it passes from a bird to an intermediary animal, oftentimes a pig. Uh, pigs are more receptive to avian influenzas, and their lungs are more like humans, so they they cook up a a, a a variant uh, disease that then is transmissible to humans. Uh, so I don't think that unless she has a pig in the house that the parrot's gonna be any trouble. I've been to their home, as far as I know, they don't. And anyway, right now we know it's hard to find pigs. Yes, indeed. <laughs> have to stock up. So Paige asks this really interesting question. Thank you, Paige. As civilians, how are we to decide which reports and reporters are reliable, trustworthy sources for information and guidance? Well, it's a question. You know, right now, you know, we're overwhelmed with speculation and and uh, conspiracy theories, uh, and uh, you know, people are fumbling to find out, you know, what can they trust? And it's confounded by the fact that medicine is still struggling to understand this disease. Uh, it seems like every week we are we find out something new uh, that about the disease. Oftentimes, things that contradict things that we thought before. It doesn't affect children. Yes, it does. You know, uh, it's a respiratory disease. Well, not just respiratory, you know, it affects the heart, it affects the kidneys, it affects the brain. You know, it's, it's, it's only spread by droplets. Well, no, not, you know, there are so many different uh, variations. It seems like every day we find something new. That doesn't mean that medicine doesn't know what it's doing. It means that medicine is learning. But in the midst of that, uh, you'll hear a lot of conspiracy theories and, and, and some medical people uh, with, I think, very spurious ideas saying that it's not dangerous or that it can be cured by, you know, this formula or that formula. You know, this medicine works. We find out that those things don't work. They have to be tested. And uh, so far, we have not found a, a reliable cure for this. If you find someone who says that there is a reliable cure, uh, then you should treat that with great skepticism until you've heard about the clinical trials. Well, Larry, it's, it's a remarkable book. You're a remarkable author, a great journalist, and really appreciate you spending time with us. Is there any closing thought that you'd want to say before we thank you officially and take off? I guess my final thought, I, you know, we will be a different country after this is over. And uh, I think it's something about a war or a depression and a pandemic that it's like an x-ray that allows you to see into your society 
more deeply than ever before. And I think we're all aware of our shortcomings as a society, and we have the opportunity to remedy them. Whether we will is, in, is up to us. You know, we did in the Depression. We reshaped our country during the Depression and made it stronger and more unified, more cohesive. We did in World War II. 9-11 was a very mixed experience for us. And, uh, but, you know, so we, we have risen to it in the past and we have not quite done so in, in the recent uh, past. So we have a chance to show that we can make changes in our society that make us a better, stronger, healthier society. And I just hope we take that opportunity. Larry, again, many thanks. Thanks again. Thanks, Jim.